Thank you all for joining us. Um, my name is Jeff Mankoff. I'm with the Russia and Eurasia program here at CSIS. And I get the honor uh, and the pleasure of welcoming you to our public session on countering disinformation, interdisciplinary lessons for policymakers. Um, we have a really interesting and diverse uh, panel up here. Um, this project came about uh, as a result of frustration some of us here were having about the nature of conversations in Washington about dealing with disinformation. Uh, it's a topic that has gotten lots of attention. Um, as I was saying before, sometimes a little bit more heat than light. Um, hopefully we'll be able to shine some light and not only the literal kind, um, on the nature of disinformation and its effect on political outcomes. And to do that, we have put together a program that tries to combine perspectives from different disciplines so that we cut across some of the typical silos that seem to affect these kind of discussions. So we have experts on Russia, on China, uh, computer scientists, and somebody working on um, the very practical problem of uh, tracking and responding to bot attacks. Uh, so we have people from the public sector, private sector, NGOs, uh, and the like. Um, we are doing this program in cooperation and partnership with the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, uh, to whom we're very grateful for the support. Um, before we get started, I'd like to give the floor to Paula Nares from uh, Konrad Adenauer Stiftung office in Washington to say a couple of opening remarks. Thank you, Jeff. Um, very warm welcome uh, to today's panel discussion also from my side, um, which will um, hopefully provide some important interdisciplinary lessons for policymakers. Before we begin, I would like to express my sincere gratitude to CSIS for inviting us, the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung or Konrad Adenauer Foundation in English, to support this timely event with so many distinguished guests and experts both from the US as well as from various other countries around the world. Olga and Jeff, thank you. Where's Olga? I haven't seen her. Here you are. Thank you for having us. This event is quite timely, not only because of the ongoing debate and warnings from US intelligence and law enforcement officials about possible covert campaigns to influence the upcoming midterm elections in the US. Just a few days ago, we had Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee, not the first hearing on this issue, as we all know. Twitter is suspending fake and suspicious accounts. Facebook has taken down malicious pages, just to mention a few of the latest news and developments. Apart from the intense debate in the US, I consider this event quite timely because it will hopefully also shed some light on what is going on in other countries. The challenge of countering disinformation is by no means restricted to the United States, but a global problem. Let me, dear ladies and gentlemen, draw your attention to a new Ipsos study of over 19,000 men and women across 27 countries about fake news, filter bubbles, and post-truth. The results were published just last week. According to the findings of this study, three out of five adults say they regularly see fake news, and nearly half say they've believed a fake story before finding out it's fake. However, close to 70% of Americans believe that the average person in the US doesn't care about facts 
on politics or society anymore, and they just believe what they want. The results might be a little bit better elsewhere, yet, according to the Ipsos study, more people agree than disagree with this pessimistic view than in all 27 countries of that study. Imagine that. We also see huge differences. So, for example, when it comes to the meaning or understanding of fake news, Americans, according to this study, are more likely than people from any other countries to think of fake news as a term that politicians and the media use to discredit news they don't agree with. In Russia and Canada, 46% of the survey participants share the same opinion. In Germany and France, only 25 to 27% would agree. In Italy, just 11%. Instead, a much higher amount of Italians, for example, thinks, think that fake news are simply stories where the facts are wrong. Despite these differences in perception, the result of the survey reveals a, quote, resignation to the complexity of life and the abundance of data in an increasingly digitalized or digitized society, as states Robert Grimm, director of Ipsos Public Affairs. To devote oneself to opinion images driven by emotion which create immediate experience through easily accessible bipolar black and white positions is, as Robert Grimm says, a simpler solution than finding the truth among many possible truths, plural. This is, states Grimm, where populism begins. From this point of view, countering disinformation will probably not succeed if the countermeasures, as important and necessary as they are, if these countermeasures are limited to, let's say, the supply side alone, the fight against malicious social media pages and fake accounts, for example. Instead, these countermeasures also have to address the question of how to increase the credibility of quality information, let's say quality media information, how to encourage open-mindedness instead of living in filter bubbles, and how to train and enable people to better identify fake news from real news. During the next 90 minutes or two hours, we would like to address these issues with insights and of course, all the views here are personal views and opinions expressed by our panelists from different countries and academic fields, including communications, computer science, and social psychology. We might not always agree, or we might not agree with all of these personal opinions and um, personal views, but I'm really looking forward to the debate. And I happily invite all of you to share your opinions, your comments, and your questions. Again, my sincere gratitude to CSIS and to all of you for joining us today. Jeff, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Paul. OK, we're going to start our panel off with short comments from each of our presenters, and then we'll have uh, a conversation up here before opening it up to the floor. Uh, let me introduce our presenters. Uh, to my far left, that's not a 
political reference. That's just a location. Uh, we have Jakub Janda, who is the head of the Kremlin Watch Program at the European Values Think Tank in Prague, uh, who closely tracks uh, particularly Russian information operations and propaganda. Uh, to my immediate left uh, is Safe Savage, who is an assistant professor of computer science at the University of West Virginia uh, and studies artificial intelligence, uh, networks, and their impact on um, political outcomes. To my immediate right uh, is Tabia Vilka, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Bots Watch, which, as the name implies, watches bots and helps political campaigns uh, and candidates track and respond to the impact of bots. Uh, and then to my far right, again, not a political comment, uh, although uh, maybe, uh, is Joshua Eisenman, who is a professor of political science at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, uh, and is an expert on Chinese politics, the Communist Party, and um, Chinese foreign policy. So why don't we start with Jakob, and we'll just go uh, down the line. All right. Thank you to CSIS and CAS for having me here. Uh, well, what I'll try, I'll briefly talk about Central Eastern Europe and the Balkans, where the region I work in. Um, what I think is important for you to see from Washington is that uh, it, it, it essentially is already a zero-sum game with uh, with the West against Russia and China and their influence activities in the whole region. It might not be as visible as it is in Ukraine, where the military conflict is ongoing, or the Russian occupation of, of Georgian or Moldovan territory, but the non-kinetic influence activities on political or informational level are uh, heavily growing. So um, if, if you look to year to year, uh, and we do the ranking or assessments of countries in Europe, how do they stand up to Russian subversion, uh, there are countries which are actually going worse. And uh, very simply, you could say it's Italy, it's Austria, it's Czech Republic, it's Slovakia, uh, it could be other countries in the whole region, which are doing worse in responding to Russian um, aggressive tactics in non-military non means. Uh, so I'm just ringing the bell saying that, uh, at least in this field, it is actually going worse. And we could see more and more of the cooperation between Russian and Chinese influence activities. They share similar political assets. Uh, if I put it simply, they run um, similar or same politicians in some countries. Uh, and uh, this is actually ongoing. And this is very much visible in Hungary in country I come from, Czech Republic, uh, and in a couple of others. So uh, to, to, to say very simply what, what I think should be done is that uh, the U.S. Stop, should stop seeing Central Eastern Europe only as a, as, a, as a field or a region which is full of allies, which I believe we are in the region. But the problem is that the, mainly the Chinese influence activities outside of the, the, the Russian disinformation, which, which is publicly visible, are actually very much increasing. And you can't really read about that much, because the Chinese are very good in silencing the opposition on the ground, at least in Central Eastern Europe, but obviously you know it from other regions. Uh, so this is actually what uh, has been ongoing in Central Eastern Europe. So I actually have only three major steps which should be taken. And uh, some of them already are, at least here in DC. Uh, so anytime there is... Um, 
there is a foreign hostile actor which tries to interfere or try to perform what we call elite capture in one country, there are actually three things you can, you can and should be doing. First is to, is to stop the aggressor by punishment and deterrence. Uh, we know it from military terms, but in non-military terms, it is almost not happening. The only countries which are actually waging massive sanctions, at least against Russia, is the US and partly the UK. But on the, on the European continent, uh, there is uh, no, no political will for additional sanctions, which would actually hurt hurt uh, the Putin's regime and tries to change its calculus. Uh, and that's also a success for Russia already. So stopping the aggressor is the first thing, and I would say the, the most important one, because we spent last three, four years, at least in Europe, discussing how the Russian and partly the um, Chinese influence activities are growing. How can we protect ourselves better? This is, and that's important to build resilience. That's the, that's the second and third step. But if we don't stop the aggressor, it will actually, will actually keep losing. And I'm afraid in this field, at least in Europe, we are losing because uh, you can go step by step or case by case, uh, various uh, national elections in Europe, which have been uh, targeted by Russian hostile activities. And after that, what happened was only rhetorics. Uh, there were no additional sanctions in any, of any kind done by European countries against Russia in this case because there is no political will. And I would finish up just the example of the Skripal case of the Russian chemical attack in the UK. I would say that in communication dimension, I think the West was pretty successful in showing how the Russians have been lying. They have put up about 30 official positions how it should have been, what should have happened. But on the practical level, my rhetorical question would be, do you think Russia feels that it was punished for what it, done, what it has done in the UK? My answer would be no, because what actually happened is that we just sent home a couple of their spies. That's everything what the West has done. And the US has, has uh, prepared more sanctions, which I think is positive. But in Europe, this is not happening. So finishing up with, um, with uh, just putting it out there that uh, the Russian and Chinese activities are first growing in Central Eastern Europe, and in Western Balkans, they are actually winning. I think they are very close to actually getting um, big, big, big portions of Western Balkans in the geopolitical sphere of mainly Russia, but partly China, which is not so visible, but is actually very much present in the whole region. So if you look from DC, I'm afraid we are, if, if we were sitting here a year ago, I think the situation has got worse, at least in the region I'm talking about. I'll finish here. Okay. Thank you. What do we need to know about artificial intelligence? Um, so, uh, with it, with, in my research lab, uh, so I'm an assistant professor at uh, West Virginia University in the computer science department. Um, in my research lab, uh, we have been studying primarily uh, how political trolls organize online. And um, I would say that uh, some of the three takeaways is that we're finding that, and we studied political trolls um, in the US, in Mexico, um, and also in France, uh, how they were participating and coordinating uh, for the presidential elections that happened in 2016, 2017, and, and recently in 2018. Um, we identified three main strategies that they had. The first one was that uh, they adopted uh, a slang. Um, and so both in Mexico and in the US, they had uh, certain terms for how they called themselves. Uh, for instance, in the US, they called themselves the, the, the deplorables. Um, they had a, a 
as well uh, figure, figures for themselves like Pepe. Um, and these were effective techniques to start to build a community. The second strategy that we identified was that they had concrete calls to action for viralizing their content. So uh, they would get people that maybe were new to the community to just help them to start spreading across different networks. So a lot of them were organizing in Reddit and they were going off into Twitter, Facebook, um, into their own personal networks to viralize their content. The third strategy that we identified was um, they provided a lot of historical context to people about what was going on, why they should uh, support their political candidate. So for instance, in Mexico, they created uh, manuals that explained in detail uh, the economical, uh, the economical uh, proposals of, of their political candidate. And so they took the time to explain to uh, people that maybe didn't have any economic background um, what was going on, what their candidate was proposing. Um, as well in the US, uh, they created manuals that would explain to people exactly what, what certain WikiLeaks against Hillary Clinton meant. And they also created manuals that would help anyone to be able to debate, uh, for instance, a liberal, to convince them to uh, suddenly become a conservative. Um, and within our analysis, we, we were very interested in, well, which of these strategies that these political trolls are utilizing uh, suddenly becomes the most effective. We actually identified that the most effective techniques were uh, providing, providing historical context. So explaining to people why they should support a, political, a, a particular political candidate. Um, so for instance, in Mexico, um, the, these uh, economic uh, manuals that they created uh, were were highly viralized. Uh, they received a lot of comments. And so um, a lot of the times, I think th for me, the, the biggest takeaway that, uh, that I would like to share with you is that a lot of the times we believe that citizens uh, maybe are a, a little bit naive, uh, that they might not engage if we, if, if we explain to them the, the, the context. What we're finding is that this is something that political trolls are doing, and this is becoming effective for them to engage citizens. Um, and so I, I think that that is one of the biggest takeaways that I would like, to, uh, I, I would like us to think about. Um, the second thing that we are currently looking at is uh, the midterm elections, and we're looking at how political, well, how is misinformation being targeted towards minorities? and specific Latinos. Um, and so we were analyzing on Reddit and Twitter um, who exactly is discussing uh, votes, elections, uh, and Latinos. We identified two main groups. One are NGOs that are um, that, that are very focused on helping Latinos get better jobs, helping change the stereotype about what a, what a Latino can do. And then the other organizations were political trolls. And um, I think here what I want to share with you is that we're finding a gap. So the NGOs are very focused on empowering Latinos, but they're not necessarily discussing uh, the political ecosystem as much. And so they're very focused on helping Latinos uh, get better jobs, uh, change the stereotype about what a Latino is, but they're not necessarily discussing the political candidates as much with them, or the political, the current eco political ecosystem. Whereas the political trolls, they are discussing, uh, they are discussing the candidates with, 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 with Latinos, they're showing how uh, other Latinos are supporting them, and um, in occasions they are as well uh, sharing uh, memes and jokes uh, against, against Latinos uh, to, sometimes for instance, uh, against uh, illegal Im immigrants, they're creating a lot of, a lot of jokes uh, against them. Um, but what we're finding in my research is that uh, there is currently what I see a gap in which uh, nobody is necessarily, we, we don't have a group that is uh, maybe not as extreme as political trolls that is explaining the political ecosystem to Latinos. Um, and so I think that this might be something that we can discuss and we can think about um, because it might be a gap that we can help cover and uh, this can be a population uh, that maybe we also want to further engage in, 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 in political discussion.
Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, from trolls to bots. Thank you, and uh, thank you CSIS and Konrad Adenauer Stiftung for having me today. Um, today, elections are not elections anymore. Information is not information anymore. And pictures are not pictures anymore. Everything is fake or real or what is it? No one knows exactly. So we developed a technology at BotsWatch that is able to detect bots and influence operations automatically and in real time. Um, we provide data. We are a data technology company. And um, for example, we use picture detection. We can redetect networks. We use metadata, text analysis, um, and supervised taxonomy to really assess data and find the um, um, originator of the interference or the influence of the data you see. Um, we focus on digital platforms, for example, social media networks like Twitter or other networks, and to show the influence and the activity, every irregular activity about that. So, for example, we found a lot of activity during the German elections last year. Um, what maybe is interesting for Washington DC is that there was, for the first time, a very large assembly of different networks coming together and working on the interference on the elections. And these networks have been from different part of the world, um, part of the alternative right from the US, part of uh, Norway, part of Germany, part of Austria. And we also could see a kind of Eastern influence on these networks. Um, so when you look at your midterms, it's very important to see or to open your mind to make the unthinkable thinkable. And that there's a lot out there. And the main issue is that you have to be very fast. It's not like fast in your attribution, fast in your analysis, um, and be very early alerted. Um, we provide for our customers three, three um, yeah, products, let's say. We, we uh, provide the detection, we provide an alert system, that means we can see activity before it has an impact of public opinion. And um, the third product is forensic and attribution. And putting all these things together, we are a cyber intelligence company right now. And um, yeah, the, the thing I want you to, to uh, take in consideration, be very fast during your midterms. Thank you. OK, and thank you for being very fast. Um, and Joshua is going to talk to us about China. It's, it's, it's great to be here. Oh. Yeah, use the microphone. Aha. It's, no. Hello, you got me? Good. Um, okay, so I'm going to start off with a kind of blanket statement that everyone, I think, understands, but it's worth putting out there. Um, the Communist Party of China is a political organization. It has political objectives. It may use economic or military means to achieve those objectives, but we should never confuse the means with the ends. Okay. And the goal of the Communist Party of China is to retain control over China. Okay? And I think it's important because that gives us the realm of the possible. The realm of the possible is if it will make the CPC stronger, they will probably do it. 
If it will not hurt them, they may do it. And if it will hurt them, they will not do it. And I think that that has to be in our minds because when we hear people like Christine Lagarde at the IMF turn to China and say, will you guys just be a little bit more transparent? No, because that's just not going to make them more powerful. In fact, it would harm them. So we need to understand what's the realm of the possible. Um, the Communist Party, unlike in democratic liberal nations like our own, um, it seeks to bind the Chinese people together in strength to achieve the Chinese dream. And the Chinese dream is based on a unified Chinese populace striving together to achieve this unified national dream. This is the fasci in the word fascism. And the worst thing that you can be in China is a splittist. Um, that is an accusation, that is a crime, to be a splittist. Whereas in America, everyone's a splittist, right? Everyone who's on Twitter, you're you know, splitting with, with somebody one way or another. And so that makes our system susceptible to the kind of Russian interference that Jacob mentioned. But the Chinese system where the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee are the selectorate, they are not really susceptible to this kind of infiltration campaigns. Maybe they're susceptible to other things, but not in the same way because there aren't elections. They're not midterms. So they're not susceptible in that way. It's also, I think, a common belief that the Communist Party of China likes violence, but I would argue against that. In fact, the CPC prefers co-option over violence. It refers to violence when it cannot co-opt you. And so a lot of the interference we see is fundamentally different than Russia because it seeks to co-opt certain agents of influence uh, within the United States and elsewhere, and that's fundamentally different. And the Chinese, of course, have 5,000 years of glorious history in wooing foreigners and manipulating them. So the idea that we, the Americans, in our 200 years of somewhat history, were going to change China through engagement was a fallacy. Right? We weren't going to change China any more than we were going to Christianize China during the missionary days. And it was a wrong-headed assumption to have believed that. And so now we are faced with the, the failure of the US engagement strategy, and we've got to deal with it. Uh, in fact, I would say engagement wasn't simply moot. It was a failure because what it did was it opened up the United States at numerous different levels to United Front tactics and infiltration. It basically sent one after another US officials to China, where, they, where, where they're files could be built up, where information could be gathered on them, and often, in many cases, to very little benefit to the American people. And so the uh, engagement strategy then has led us to be manipulated and allowed us and opened us up to this manipulation. And I would submit to you the proof that in the 2000s, when I was an analyst in Washington, there were three prevailing views on China, and none of them turned out to be correct. The most prevalent view, the view expressed by Bill Clinton and others, was that China would eventually liberalize and democratize and become just like us, because don't you know everyone wants to be? The second view was that China would simply muddle through with a kind of consultative autocracy with different power centers balancing off each other. This was the view I subscribed to and, and many others did as well. And then the third view, which was held by a minority, but a minority with some gravitas, was that the Communist Party was not long for this world and would eventually fall. None of those three were correct. Xi Jinping, now the chairman of all things in China, that was not something that was predicted by anybody. And I would ask you to look up the op-eds, you know, go through the stuff. I've tried and I can't find one person who thought that we would revert back to that kind of system. And so I would argue that this was the success of the efforts that were made during the 2000s, to have the leading American thinkers on China all see China as moving in, quote, the right direction. And of course, it's the right direction as we see it. Um, this was, of course, enhanced by the willingness of the Chinese to help us to see what we wanted to see, right? Yeah, we're liberalizing, I swear. 
right? Um, it's exactly as you think that it is. And this is this whole barbarian handler manipulation that many have written about, so I won't go into here. But I would suggest that um, actually the people in Jonanhai should congratulate themselves. For 10 years, they really had us beat. And at this point, we're, I think, coming out of this, finally recognizing that we have to adjust our strategy. And so then I would say how to adjust our strategy. And I would say engagement with China cannot be eliminated completely, nor should it be. That's just not possible. So we should engage China, but how should we do it? Well, the first thing we shouldn't do is say engagement for engagement's sake is good, that more engagement is better at all times, right? It's like, you know, more pizza is better at all times. At some point, we have to say that we have to have an end game to our strategy. And so, my, so what I would suggest, propose to you, and you could take me to task during Q&A, is that we should have three buckets of our engagement with China that we, as we review our strategy. The first bucket should be things that are working, serving the US people, serving their interests, the US money being spent wisely. That we should keep, every one of them. Then the ones that are moot, not really helping, not really hurting, but just using resources that could be deployed elsewhere. And we can mothball those, maybe bring them back if we find them to be valuable. And then the third group, things that are harmful, that are not serving US interests, that are in fact a facade by which bad behavior can be hidden behind. Uh, dialogues on human rights and cyber and things like this, which frankly have not been successful. And those things should be eliminated and not be considered because they are not serving the interests of the American people. And so it seems to me that we have to adjust our engagement strategy, not throw out engagement, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, but to adjust it in a way that is more befitting with our national interests. And <clears throat> um, I don't want to go on for too long here. Um, but I think that the, the kind of watchword for our new China policy, if we're going to adopt one in the United States, uh, should be reciprocity and transparency. Um, these should be our watchwords. Uh, we should not allow um, uh, you know, our liberal values to be leveraged against us such that we can be treated in a certain way, but our high moral liberal values will not allow us to respond. And that is, I believe, what has been argued for a long time. And I think that the only liberalism that can be successful is a muscular liberalism. That the days of a powder puff liberalism, those days are gone. And the days of the end of history are gone. And the only way to defend our values is actually to defend them, not to wring our hands. And so I want to kind of put out these provocative ideas to you and um, see who calls me on them. <laughs> OK, thanks. Well, we've covered quite a bit of ground up here. And I want to try and draw some of the various strands that we've heard together. Uh, so Jakob and Joshua focused on the, the national approaches of China and Russia to information operations. And I think it's important to keep in mind, as both of them laid out, that when we talk about information operations, we're not only talking about things designed to manipulate electoral outcomes in third countries, but there's a broader context within both Russia and China in which these techniques are developed. And there's a broader strategic context that affects their relations with the United States, with the West, their approach to the world, um, and that that also shapes the way that these various tools are deployed. So for the two of you, the question that I want to put out there is, you know, you both talked about a, a number of different aspects of, of how Russia and China use information, but I want you to maybe bring it in a little bit to focus on specifically things that impact politics in the United States and 
allied democratic countries. One, how does this operate? And two, what does it aim to achieve? What, what are the strategic objectives that Jakub, Russia, and Josh, China are trying to achieve through their targeted use of information operations in the United States and, and allied countries? And then for Saif and Tabia, who talked about the technical aspects of how these information campaigns operate, what the tools are, to connect it to the politics a little bit, and specifically to the to the international context. So in looking at trolls, um, we know about the IRA, the, the Russian troll farm. We know that the Russian government supports, in various ways, uh, people engaged in trolling. What can you say about these connections that may be sort of beyond the things that we've all seen in, in the newspaper about troll farms? How does Russia interact with people who act as trolls, whether they're based in Russia or based in, in outside countries, the United States or elsewhere? Um, and similarly with bots, how do bots fit into the communications or political strategies of Russia and China. What do you see when you look at the, the networks of where these bots are coming from and how they're trying to move opinion on particular issues? How does that connect back to the things that Russia and China are trying to operate or are, are trying to achieve? So let's start with, with Jakob and Josh and then we'll go to safe interview. So uh, Russian government's objectives and uh, I mean John McCain called it called it a petrol station with nukes, which I think is more or less pretty much fitting. And uh, what basically when we are asking about Russian government, let's call it Putin's regime. Uh, it's not only about him, but people around him as well. The Silovniki, let's say, people who who, who form the security elite of the of the state of the nation of the country. So uh, according to how we understand it, there are two strategic objectives which Putin holds: one, to stay in power as long as possible. Second, uh, to become a Russian historical figure. For those two objectives, what Putin needs is first and most most uh, importantly to stop any potential revolution inside of Russia. How he can do it? Well, use the usual oppressive means of any dictatorship against his own population. So that's already ongoing. But also to step, stop countries in a close neighborhood of Russia from modernizing themselves and delivering better quality of life to their citizen. That's the reason why you have Russian techs in Ukraine territory, in Georgian territory, partly in Moldovan territory, but it's a bit historical. And for those reasons, this is this is what Putin actually believes he needs. So something what, what you could call a buffer zone or a sphere of influence over countries in a close Russian neighborhood, which cannot, and it's not only about EU or potentially NATO membership, it's really about if those countries would be delivering much better quality of life to their citizen, the ordinary Russians might start seeing this, and this is something what could undermine the regime inside Russia. Why are we doing so bad or so much worse than our Russian, our Ukrainian cousins? This is the the worst question which could be posed on Russian on Russian streets in the future. So that, for this reason, you have Russian tanks in Ukraine and and elsewhere in the region. So and here comes the question: Why is Russian government using the subversion or information operations and other tools in the West? Well, it's again pretty easy. It's not about that they would like to conquer the US or Western Europe, but they need to neutralize us, generally speaking, as the West, as the ones who are resisting to the to Russian objective. We are the ones who are saying to Russia, you cannot really invade Ukraine and other countries in the region and make them your slave states. 
or puppet states or whatever you want to call it. So for this reason, the, uh, r the Russian government uses two tactics. One is the long-term uh, long uh, influence, and second is the short-term uh, effects in the electoral campaigns. Uh, and they have two, two main uh, tools how to do it. One is trying to change the battlefield, let's say, which means trying to focus on the population through specific disinformation. That's one part. That's something what you have seen in the U.S. and you are seeing it now in the midterms. And second part is the elite capture efforts. So bribery and many other cooptation efforts, how to do so. And if I put it very simply, what Putin wants is to have political leaders in the West who wouldn't be opposing if he basically takes over Ukraine in geopolitical sense, not just, just a physical occupation. Um, so this is basically how we understand it. This is the end, uh, the, I cannot say the end goal, but this is clearly the current objective objective, and I think it will stay that way, um, to basically support uh, with Russian hostile activities in the West so that uh, they are, let's say, Kremlin-friendly, or I would say political leaders who are tolerant to what Russia wants to do in its close neighborhood, and basically who would forget about those small and mid-sized nations in close Russian neighborhood. I come from Prague, which actually has been occupied by, by Russians for 20 plus years with tanks, and 20 other years with KGB. Uh, prior to it, let's say. So this is we know quite well how this operates. It doesn't need to be just tanks in the streets. It could be it could be basically elite capture state, with which is occupied through intelligence and other political means. And you cannot be a sovereign nation. So this is the end goal, and not, not really about this happening in the U.S., but clearly having West, Western leaders who will be okay with this happening in Eastern Europe. So that's the reason why clearly uh, Russia uh, tried to support similar, let's say, political figures in any, on most of political campaigns in the West. Those one who would be saying or acting like they wouldn't really try to stop or resist when Russia does this. Well, getting back to my first statement, right? The Communist Party of China wants to control China. And because it lacks domestic legitimacy, because it doesn't have elections or a way to understand what its people believe, it seeks legitimacy externally. And so the primary thing that the Communist Party of China wants is external validation of its legitimacy to rule China. And if the greatest, most powerful country in the world, the United States, accepts that, the Communist Party's rule over China is legitimate, then this goes a long way to securing their rule over China. But if the United States, with its soft power, with its global influence, was out there saying this is an illegitimate regime, then that would be very detrimental. I think we can all agree. And so the fundamental objective is to secure US support for continued rule over China by the party. And you know, and under that banner, you can add a bunch of other kind of smorgasbord of things. You could add a good image of China in general, that we perceive China as favorable. We perceive China as benign. We see the regime as helping its people climb out of poverty. We perceive of China's intentions as uh, supportive and helpful within the international framework. Um, BRI, uh, Belt and Road Initiative in particular, I would add here. Um, and how they do this then is through funding for institutions, universities, think tanks, um, uh, test, they, they fund people who will then testify before Congress. Um, elite capture, as was mentioned before, um, 
And of course, Mr. Henry Kissinger being the number one among them. Um, I can tell you that in the Central Party School of the Communist Party of China hangs a portrait of Henry Kissinger. Um, I dare say that uh, Mao Zedong's portrait is not in the Democratic or Republican headquarters here in Washington. Um, so that's, this is a very important role that external legitimation plays for the party, but it's not just, of course, the United States. All other foreign countries which choose, say, Beijing over Taipei are, in effect, legitimizing the rule of the CPC. Um, and the one kind of final point I'll put on this is that those uh, keepers of the flame, the people who still believe that engagement wasn't the wrong policy, they've got a new line that they're using, and that's it could have gone different. It could have broken my way, man, I swear. Um, but to me, that is just an excuse to replicate the mistakes of the past. So I think that I wanna, I wanna perk your ears up to this. If you start hearing people say, well, you know, our strategies towards China, you know, it could have worked, but it didn't. I think that is the rub. I think that's when you've gotta be concerned because that is a suggestion that we're gonna go back and do the same thing. And we all know what we call something when you do something and it's, and it's bad and you go and do it again and again and again. I think that's the definition of crazy, right? So we have to be very aware of this, of the mistakes we've made and not go and fall back into this uh, trap that we've already been in. Um, thank you. Um, by the way, I want to thank uh, CSIS and CAS for inviting me. I, I forgot to mention it before. Um, so overall, um, I think that for me the most dangerous thing about uh, political trolls and, and these troll farms is um, we interviewed we, we interviewed a great number of uh, people that identified themselves as pro-Trump trolls, um, political trolls. And for me, it was very interesting to see that, A, they didn't believe there was any Russian intervention, um, and they truly believed that they were on their own fighting against, uh, fighting against the system. So uh, they, they felt aut autonomous, and that it was them that, that it was driving, dri dri driving it. Um, I saw similar things that were happening in, in, in Mexico as well in, in, these, in these presidential elections in which they did not believe there was any Russian intervention. And I think that this is dangerous in terms of that suddenly for these groups, um, just even raising, raising the question about do you think there was any Russian intervention, it becomes a type of joke. So for instance, in Mexico, they actually adopted uh, suddenly a lot of the slogans uh, pro uh, the candidate that, that, that just won that, was, uh, that, that had it, the name and also uh, uh, words in, in Russian. So he was called Amlovsky. Um, and it became a type of joke that they, that they adopted. And I think that this becomes dangerous in terms of that you suddenly cannot even question that you might even that you might have an intervention. And so I think that um, instead of maybe being afraid of uh, the troll farms that are happening in, uh, in in Russia, I think that where we should be most scared of is that they might be convincing locals to think that there is no intervention, that they are acting on their own when maybe somebody else is pushing a certain agenda to them, they might not even realize it, and suddenly uh, they, d they don't even question the fact that there, there might be a, a, an, an external intervention. Um, I, I think that, that, is, that is, for me, the, the, the scariest thing to, to, to think about. Just really quickly before we go over to Tibia, what did that external intervention look like? I mean, when you talk about these trolls who are trying to, or who are even claiming to themselves that they were not on the receiving end of any external intervention, what did you find in terms of what that intervention actually looked like? So, so for instance, that, I think that's a great question. So, for instance, in the case of Mexico, uh, they did identify that there were several websites that actually ha came from Russian IPs, and. 
And uh, they also created, for instance, like these crypto coins that were pro uh, th that, that candidate. And people took that as a joke. Uh, they created crypto coins uh, pro AM AMLO, which is the, the candidate that won. And uh, when they tracked back the IPs, uh, they were from Russia. Um, so people took all of this as a joke. Um, and so this, you, you could think about that, uh, like the, these were certain types of, of, of interventions that were happening in, in Mexico. Um, People took it as, as a joke, and uh, some reporters said that this was organized from from the opposition of of uh, of, of AMLO, but it, it's unclear. Um, and so, but I think it's dangerous that, uh, for instance, like the, those those cases where they were tracking back these IPs to Russia, um, people just uh, th threw them off, and instead of maybe investigating more, they, they were taken as jokes. Um, and on the the bots. Yeah. First of all, it's important to know what a bot is. So who in this room does, does know uh, or knows what a bot is? Raise your hand. You who know knows? Know. Yeah. If you know, what is a bot? Raise your hand if you do know what a bot is. Okay. Okay. So, so it's time to explain. Um, a social bot, we call it social bot because we are focusing on social media networks. Social bots are accounts on social media networks like Twitter, Facebook, and so on that are not run by humans, like when you're tweeting or being on Facebook, it's run by a software. That means automatic communication. And why is it important in the political sphere? Um, it's important because you can run not only one account by the software, you can run like 50 or 500 or 5,000 or 500,000 or more accounts just using one software. That means when you want to spread news or want to spread an information or want to spread a narrative by using bots, you can really achieve a huge amplif amplification by bots. That means, in the end, when we look at elections, for example, or we as Bots Watch look also on terror attacks, um, you can have a huge influence by very small efforts. And in elections, the threat is that, you, that the media is taking the narrative, and the media talks about the topics of bots, and not uh, of the topics about human beings. So bots are able to, to change and to, to manipulate media agenda, trending topics and everything. And that means it looks like a different kind of reality than it would look like without bots. So basically, this is how bots work. And bots are used in kind of um, campaigns, information campaigns, that mean the coordination of bots to spread information or to spread a certain narrative. So this is basically what bots are. Um, when we use, uh, when we look at um, bots being used um, for for influ influence operation, that means trying to manipulate the public sphere or the media agenda or elections. Um, we see that the originators know very well the public sphere of the target audience. That means they know how the media system work. They know how what the people think or what the current um, me uh, media narrative is or the values. And the most important thing is they know what issue really moves people and what country. So in the US, gun control might be an issue. 
in different kind of audiences. Um, as an effect, you had kind of influence after the Parkland shooting in Florida um, at the beginning of this year. So we saw a lot of influence um, bringing this issue up and trying to, to um, push or let's say um, support um, opinions that are not the same. Like the, the, the objective is um, sowing discord, try to undermine um, the values of a society and the values, um, not only the political values, but what really holds the society together. So this is very important to know. In Germany we had the case, um, we have a kind of issue with refugees at the moment or for some years now, and we saw a lot of bot activity focusing on refugee topics and the foreign influence um, we could see, or that there was a foreign influence, um, that the bots talked about colored people. In Germany, colored people, it's not a topic at all. So this was a totally new topic and definitely something that came from outside and not only, or not from Germans or the German public. So um, they focus on Muslims, women, colored people, and something like this. And in, in, in the US, you have different strategies as well. They're becoming better and better. And what is also important to know is that bots change every day. That means when you are able to detect today, uh, bots today, that does not mean you are able to detect them tomorrow because they change. And the same is for influence operations and narrative operations. So what we face today is um, how to, to target these influences because it's a war on hearts and minds all over the world, and especially on the Western world. And the tacti tactical training moved to cyberspace, and we have to think about how to respond to that. Okay, so again, for, for Safin to be a, looking at these operations, whether it's trolls or bots, how do you know if they've had an effect? How do you know if they've pushed the, the needle on political outcomes, whether that's public opinion or electoral outcomes. I don't know about trolls and bots, but I know generally speaking about Russian disinformation campaign. For example, one of the major Russian narratives about Ukraine was that Ukraine is run by a fascist government, by a neo-Nazi government, you could say. In, and that's been the Russian disinformation narratives in many European countries. This is something that obviously appeared after 2014. So when we measured this in 2016, which with just usual polling, something what you do regularly, uh, we we found out that between 20 and 30 percent of the Czech population, a country of 10 million, actually believes this narrative. And we have tested similar narratives, like there are no organized Russian troops in Ukraine, uh, US are responsible, United States are responsible for the migration from Syria to Europe, which there is obviously so much evidence that uh, the, the Russian bombing was in, in, in many cases. So we have seen the level of support for Russian disinformation narratives to be between 20 and 40 percent, just in the Czech Republic where we have done this polling. So, and th those narratives were not present anywhere in the national public space prior to 2014, when the Russian disinformation machine started to work. So this is how I can say, maybe they had, I, I, this, this is how it appeared, this is what the Russians were pushing in, and 
20 to 40 percent, depends on each narratives, of our population actually believes it already, or actually was in 2016 when we have done the polling. So that's just a small example. Hi. So um, how we measure sometimes interventions is uh, we, we we study how people what type of things are people discussing before and after uh, a certain inter intervention. Um, so um, for instance, were they discussing positively, uh, let's say Trump, uh, and then they changed it to something negative, or were they discussing suddenly positively Hillary, and then they they changed it to uh, something ne something negative, let's say. Um, so we're very interested in seeing uh, how the topics of conversation, uh, for instance, on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, um, of people change when uh, maybe they're exposed to certain news reports or uh, even when they're engaging with bots. Um, here I would like to mention that uh, bots can also be used positively. Uh, so for instance, in our research we've seen that uh, you can engage citizens in, uh, so let's say that you have citizens that are suddenly complaining, let's say, about corruption. Um, it's also possible to use bots as uh, mechanisms that can drive citizens to suddenly, instead of complaining, maybe thinking about solutions for their city. Um, and so within our research, we're also studying how we can guide citizens to uh, maybe change the conversation uh, towards maybe something something positive that they can build uh, f f with each other. Um, and I think that can also be helpful when we're thinking about misinformation. Maybe if we have somebody that is uh, ra very, very radical in, in his or her opinions, uh, we can use bots to um, as a way to possibly engage with the person to get, start to think about uh, whether or not their views might be uh, maybe may maybe too, too radicalized and maybe try to pull them pull them back back in. Um, to measure the effect is quite hard, to be honest. Um, this is something many, many universities in the US are working right now at the moment, so if you really want to have the evidence, it's hard to, to really uh, show the evidence, um, because it's very complex. You, you literally have to look at people's minds, and um, so this is very hard. But what I can tell from, from, um, um, from, from Germany and our work is that we do three things. First of all, we, we look at the media agenda and what people are talking about, and we see a change in Germany, how people are using words. For example, um, bots introduced the word Altparteien in German. That means like old parties, and they meant the traditional parties like CDU, SPD, like the traditional parties, normal democratic parties. And um, the bots used the word Altparteien. And it's like two years after that, we see even in the national TV, in the most, in, in the Tagesschau, maybe you know that when you know a little bit about Germany, the very um, professional t national TV, um, news TV, um, talks about Altparteien. So the language changed even in, in journalism and elites. So they, they really had a huge impact on the language people have today. So this is first. Second, um, we see a lot of things at the moment going on in Germany as well in the US. And one effect is that parties or candidates um, change their communication strategy or their campaigns according to what is happening in the cyberspace and according to what bots or influence operation do. And this is a second effect we can see. And the third thing uh, we can see is, or the third effect is that even federal politics 
think of, and this is something jo Josh th said before, um, even federal, let's say, politicians think of changing our core values. In the US, it's the First Amendment. Nothing more is important than the First Amendment. And when we talk about deleting accounts, deleting networks, or deleting information or content on social media networks, this is huge. And this is something they want us to do. And this is very hard um, to, to stand this and not doing this. In my opinion, it's important to not doing this. Uh, just, just it, again, it's so hard, right? And I would say that the Chinese side in particular is very good at making it hard to know. But um, I mean, how many movies have you guys seen come out of Hollywood that have any kind of anti-Chinese narrative in the last 10 years? I, I can't think of one. Right, but there was a time when you had seven years in Tibet and Red Corner and I mean, you had a whole variety. And it seems that at least in Hollywood, the fact that we don't see anything, you know, there's plenty of anti-Russian movies, right? You'll see constantly, what was it, the Red Sparrow and this and that, but you don't see it for China. You similarly don't see it in fiction. You're, if you can find me three uh, uh, Chinese-based uh, spy novels, I'll give you uh, 10 bucks, right? I, I, I know of one. Right, so there's a, a in the cultural sphere, um, we've seen a change. Uh, similarly, I think it's it, it's harder and harder to find leading scholars working on issues that are considered sensitive issues in Beijing. So you're not going to find many people. Uh, at top levels working on issues like Tibet and the Uyghurs and things like this. Um, and if we look outside of the United States to Muslim countries, I mean, according to the United Nations, China has two million Uyghurs in jail, but I don't see many Muslim countries saying anything. Um, I don't see many countries at all saying much, right? So it seems to me that that non-response, I mean, can you imagine if the United States took two million of our Muslims and put them in jail? I mean, just think about the response from the Muslim world, right? So these are all negative, right? They're counterfactual examples. I'm saying imagine what the opposite would be. So it's hard for me to say there, right there, that's the self-censorship. But by definition, self-censorship cannot be put on the table because it's something that never happened. So, I, I, so the best way to do this is using kind of Einstein's methods of thought experiments, right? What if this influence wasn't there? What would we have expected to see? And I would, I would think we would have seen more movies, more books, more investigation, but we see less. And to me, there must be an intervening variable, to speak political science for a minute, um, and that intervening variable has to be the efforts to uh, minimize the tension to these things. And that is only coming from Beijing. Look for the dogs that don't bark. Yeah. Um, okay, we've got about half an hour, and I want to leave time for an open discussion. So uh, let's turn it over to the audience. Uh, ground rules, wait to be recognized, wait for a microphone. Um, when you get the microphone, please identify yourself, name and affiliation, please be concise, and please ask a question, which is something that ends in a question mark. Okay, <laughs> thanks. So right here. Hi, my name is Grzegorz Kvolek, I'm a Greg. Uh, I'm a journalist from Poland and also I'm a student of Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security. And I wanted to ask uh, the lady specializing in computer science and also Jakub, if there is a way to even ground with regimes because uh, they have like uh, officially state-controlled social media, they have officially controlled media, and the Western world doesn't have it. So if there is a way to find an even ground, and what's the solution? Should we like have stricter control of social media, like Twitter or Facebook, is there a way to, to find it? Thank you. Thank you. 
Can I start first? Okay. I'm not a tech person, so that's what I leave to the ladies. But what I think is the core principle, which Joshua actually mentioned on China, is the transparency. And uh, by that I mean, for example, if you are speaking only about the social media uh, activities or digital activities in general, it's, it's horribly hard, and they know it better than I do. But what we really need is to see and expose when it actually happens. To give you, and all the examples which we have been discussing here for hours, is actually, this is, this is what needs to be visible in, not only during prior, uh, prior to the elections, but also, also during the, 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 the every year. The problem we have is in, in countries like your, your country, Poland, my country, Czech Republic, we are small countries with very limited cyber capacities in the government in the military so what 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 I think will be pretty big is one one things which are more sophisticated like the deep fakes will start to appear or will start to be deployed let's say in our region uh, we will be pretty much hopeless I basically know that our our capacities to expose it are very much limited so we will be stuck with waiting whether our US friends will help us to actually start exposing that this is this keeps keeps going and ongoing. That's one of the reasons why we so much need a transatlantic alliance to keep going. Uh, because not only in direct military activities, in the non-military activities, we are so weak in Europe. With, 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 and I mean really most of the countries which, which we have on the continent. So that's, all, that's just a more, more, more like a political statement, but I see it very clearly when uh, and just the just the NSA activities in Europe. I know I know it's controversial. I sh maybe shouldn't be talking about it here in DC. But the thing is very simple. When we when there is a Russian or Chinese intelligence activity in Central Eastern Europe, most of the time what happens is that the U.S. counterpart actually tip off the local uh, intelligence community and say, "Guys, look, this is happening in your country. You should really look into it." We, we need this to keep going, because otherwise we'll be blind. And given the elite capture which we have ongoing in Central Eastern Europe in many countries, uh, the will to expose Russian and Chinese influence activities is decreasing for political reasons. By, by the local political establishment. So, and this is, this is what you see in Balkans as a preview of what might be happening in Central Eastern Europe. Not in a violent fashion, but in the political, uh, let's say, we could all become like Austria, a country which doesn't really care and is, is very happy to be bought off by the Russian money. And this is something what I'm afraid will slowly be happening in Central Eastern Europe. But I leave the technical part to, to you. Just building on this one, and then you guys can talk about the more technical side. But, you know, when we think of who is an agent of influence, I think it's very important that we don't just say somebody who says something pro-China is an agent of influence, right? There needs to be, you know, a recognition. I call it the three C's, just for a way to remember it. So it's not just comments. Comments are only one. But it's also the contacts. Are the, is this person in regular contact with intelligence officials from that particular country? Are they connected to them through their networks? Um, and then the third, and I would argue the most important of the three, is cash. Um, and if you have comments, connections, and cash, you walk like a duck and quack like a duck. Um, but if you are missing one of those three in that three-legged stool, then it's a question to me. It's, it's uncertain to me. 
Um, maybe you're just a person who believes the propaganda uh, that's coming out of Beijing, and, and you believe it in an honest way without being co-opted. It's possible. There are people who do feel that way. So I think the very first thing we could do to answer the question the gentleman asked is be able within our own countries to identify these people and call them out on it. Because what goes on within that country, I mean, we could say 100 different uh, Russians we want to arrest or 100 different Chinese, but they're never going to be arrested. They're never going to leave their country. So they're never going to actually feel any consequences. So the way we need to respond is within our own countries by having our own people who are in league with these folks feel real consequences. Because to the extent that they can take the money, make the comments, have the connections, and go on completely as normal, then they're basically uh, not being penalized for their behavior. So I would say to answer your question, the very first thing we could do is find these folks, make sure we find the right folks, and then make sure that they pay some penalty for their behavior. Uh, Bruce Guthrie, retired Department of Commerce. Um, when you listen to Putin or the fellow travelers like well, Trump or Kellyanne, um, they either argue that this isn't happening or, well, it's actually happening in every country. You're just blaming it on us, but you guys do this. Is it definitely the case that just about all of this is coming from Russia and China? Or, or is the U.S. or other countries actually doing any of this? Uh, the bots and the disinformation stuff. Um, so it, it, within our research, we were actually studying uh, how, for instance, the U.S. was uh, the, the U.S. political trolls were possibly uh, infiltrating in uh, in the, the elections in Europe. Um, we found that uh, they th there were uh, a great number. Well. Around 3,000, uh, for instance, uh, people that were highly active in uh, pro-Trump uh, online communities that were now suddenly participating in um, in political discussions uh, in, about Europe. Um, and these individuals uh, also coordinated within, uh, for instance, Discord. Uh, so Discord is a, is a private uh, online chat room where they where they coordinated about. So how how can we infiltrate? How can we start to uh, make significant postings uh, about the Euro about uh, the European uh, elections? Um, and so I think that they were not necessarily as. Uh, Maybe they were not as as effective from 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 our studies because in in reality, if you think about it, three three thousand people is is actually not 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 that big a, not that big a number, um, and but d definitely th there was an interest, uh, for instance, from people that were coming from the U.S. Uh, that wanted to take some of the online strategies that they had identified were were, were useful in the in the U.S. and take them into, uh, for instance, France. Um, and in in Mexico, we also saw that uh, they they adopted some of the some of the techniques as well that um, that, that political trolls were, were were doing were doing in the U.S. Um, it might have been that they that they saw them uh, online and they they adopted them, or or maybe they were also uh, interacting uh, with, with with each other and it was a certain type of of, of influence. But there there's definitely um, I, I don't think it's just the it's just Russia and China that, that are influencing, but um, it's also, for instance, the U.S. with within other countries, um, and, and, I, and I think that's very that's actually that's actually something that we, we should also think about that uh, within the U.S. we might be also influencing other countries. As far as you can tell. That's true. Yes, they they were more private. They were they they all came from more private, uh, just individual citizens. 
Yeah. Uh, when, no, no, not every influence is bad, right? Uh, the question which, which I get often is when I, in my think tank we run a program which is called the Kremlin Watch, looking on, at Russian activities. The question I, get, I used to get a lot, actually, I have to say, was that why aren't you looking over American influence or German influence in the Czech Republic? Well, the answer would be, Oh, I'm looking over only over the influence activities which are hostile. How do I define hostile? Well, every country, most of the countries, have something like national security strategies. Our national security strategy in the Czech Republic actually states the national security interests of the country. The vital ones like political independence, territorial integrity, strategic interests like EU membership, NATO membership, stable neighborhood, meaning like stable Ukraine. So I'm looking, and the government institutions are looking at influence activities which are hostile to those interests. So once US, Germany, I don't know, Switzerland, starts to deploy activities which will be hostile to us, trying to get us out of EU as a Czech Republic, trying to uh, buy off our politicians so that uh, it undermines our political sovereignty, then I will consider it hostile. But I don't see it happening from US, I don't know, Germany, Switzerland. I see it happening from Russia and China mainly, partly Iran, but it's very limited, at least in, in my region. But those are the ones which are there. And there is basically, if you look any publicly available intelligence report in Central Eastern Europe, you'll basically see Russia is the main adversary, which does this, in a hostile way, and China, as well, and China is the second. More or less, this is the, the whole region. That's how the security institutions read it, and to me, this is the reality. I, I would advise you to read something called Document Number 9, which was leaked uh, as a Chinese uh, document that was circulated about the fear of liberal invasion in China. The fear of liberalism, liberal values, universal values, whatever you want to call them, would be infiltrating China and undermining both the legitimacy and the ruling capability of the Communist Party. So this is something, this is a document that, ha that was leaked and so that we can see that there is great concern over what from their perspective, uh, may well be uh, American influence campaigns, right? When they look and see the color revolutions, they see American influence campaigns. So from their optic, um, that's the way they see it. And to some degree, they're not wrong because those values, the First Amendment, things like that, they are um, in tension with the, re with the system they have there politically. So from their optic, America is constantly trying to influence. That's why they have NGOs and all this other stuff, which are the kind of the soft influence. And so the Chinese have come up with their NGO law. And many, many NGOs have been having to leave China. So from their optic, if we place ourselves in their shoes, then the US has for decades been, been running influence campaigns. In fact, one consider the entire objective of engagement, if the objective was to change China, to be an influence campaign. Right? Because you're essentially trying to gradually change China from its authoritarian model to a more liberal democratic one. And if you are sitting in the seat of power in Beijing, you see that as antithetical to your interests. So if we, if we, if we step out of our shoes and put ourselves in theirs, I think you could see um, what we're doing. Now, I don't see it that way, but it's always important to put yourself in other people's shoes. Yeah, and I would say you could say something very similar about Russia. Um, in things like people talk about this so-called Gerasimov doctrine, right? Gerasimov's the, the chairman of the Russian general staff. And he supposedly was the originator of this concept of, of hybrid warfare, um, which of course isn't true because one, it's something that Russia's done for a long time. But secondly, because if you actually read the article that he wrote, 
in um, Russian military journal, what he was effectively saying was these are the things that the West has been doing to us for a long time. This is the nature of competition in the 21st century. It's about information, it's about narratives, and the West has been beating us at this, and we need to figure out how to respond in kind. So I think there's a, a sense in Russia as well that the nature of Western liberal institutions is vis-a-vis -vis a country like Russia or China is by its nature revolutionary, um, that it's trying to spread a message in a way that's going to have political impact. And in part, this search for tools of influence that can be used both domestically and in the West is a response to that perceived challenge. Well, we have a joke saying that uh, the existence of the defense ministry of the Czech Republic is an insult to the internal affairs of the Russian Federation, which more or less is it. Yeah, but I don't say anything. Um, up here. Boris Kamchev, a journalist with polygraph.info uh, service. Uh, my question is to, uh, uh, to Jacob. Uh, can you go particularly to the Western Balkans? And you mentioned that you have information about the Russian influence there. Uh, exactly on Macedonia, because we, we have coming up a referendum and uh, there are a lot of reports that the Russian, uh, Russians are trying to undermine this uh, referendum because it's, uh, you know, for the uh, EU and NATO uh, integration of the country and uh, the, the name deal between Greece and uh, Macedonia. So they want to undermine uh, this name deal and to uh, undermine the referendum. So do you have any information regarding this? And uh, do you know if Russians are financing some groups or parties Russian parties or groups who uh, boycott, who are for the boycott of the referendum. And also uh, for Slovakia, we have uh, information about this uh, military base that uh, Night Wolves, the motorbike, motorbike club Night Wolves opened there in uh, Slovakia and it uh, steered the, you know, the public opinion there. So can you uh, tell us more about this and how it's going on with it? Thank you. On Slovakia and the Night Wolves, which is like a, basically a criminal gang, which is uh, aligned with the with the Russian government. Uh, so what happened in Slovakia? Uh, they they uh, launched what they call their European headquarters, which is basically like a farm where they try to uh, gather older military equipment, which um, caused a big uproar b within the civil society and Slovak media. Uh, now there are lawsuits and various, let's say, administrative inspections, whether it will be ongoing. Uh, but it also shows you how, I mean, we, we clearly see how the Russian government has been cultivating contacts with far right, far left, and, and other extremist groups uh, in Europe. And uh, the, the use of paramilitia, paramilitary groups, actually was be, has been very successful in some countries, like in Slovakia, for example. There, there, were, there were cases where the local, so meaning Slovak extremists, were basically trained by former Spetsnaz instructors, former uh, instructors of Russian Special Operation Forces. And then those individuals actually start coming to schools or to, to uh, elementary schools in eastern Slovakia trying to basically talk about what it means that uh, Slovakia should align itself more with Russia than with the, with the West, with the EU. So it's more like a geopolitical tool. But also when you speak about foreign fighters, for example, most of the time you would probably understand it in the West as a... As a 
your citizen going to fight on behalf or in ISIS ranks, in, uh, with ISIS on, on their behalf. But quite often in, in Eastern Europe, it, it is uh, local extremists joining Russian, Russia occupying force in Ukraine and fighting on Russia's behalf. Those are more like dozens of, exa of examples. So it's not like thousands of people, fortunately, uh, but they are present there. So that's the Slovak example. And on the Western Balkans, uh, I mean, just imagine that you are a that basically you are a country of, I believe, 600,000 approximately. So basically like a small town slash city. And then you have um, basically Russian military intelligence gathering approximately 50, 60 people uh, and trying to kill your prime minister during an important election night. And that's Montenegro, at least to, according to what is publicly known, what the British government confirmed that it, it believes this is how it happened. There is a, a court case ongoing in Montenegro as well. but. It's a, it's a European country, now a NATO member, and this happened two years ago, approximately. So this is how far we already got. Uh, they tried, they failed, but I don't think the, uh, the, 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 the Russian political activities in Montenegro are still growing, and this, the support for NATO membership in Montenegro is about 55-60%. So it, it can really be triggered, possibly in the future, so Montenegro could possibly be leaving NATO if, if the Russians would be successful in their subversion operations. Uh, the, so I don't think there is a big win for the West in Montenegro yet. I think we just survived the attempt down there as, as the Western Alliance. Uh, and in Macedonia, I think it's clearly the, the next primary target, at least in this region, for the Russian subversive activities. Um, the the case you mentioned, well, imagine Greece, a country which have been, let's say, at least to some extent supportive of Russia, or has been very soft in its, in its, activity, in, in, in its resistance to Russian aggression in Ukraine, for example. Um, so imagine this country all of a sudden expelling two Russian uh, intelligence officers posing as diplomats and, um, and stopping the, the coming of two other ones to their country. That's something what Greece has done this summer, and they made it after uh, there was an incident which basically Russia, uh, Russian intelligence was so aggressive inside Greece trying to finance some rallies against the, the name change. So basically a local dispute between Greece, between Greece and Macedonia over, over the, the name of Macedonia. So it looks like that it might be going into the right direction, but the Russian activities are at all time high, at least in Greece, at least to my understanding. Um, so I really cannot say what the Russians will do in, in Macedonia. I don't think they would try the same scenario as, Mon as Montenegro, which is basically a violent uh, paramilitary attempt to actually assassinate, uh, in that case it was a prime minister or anybody like that. But also the other thing which we don't talk about much, and we should, and it's really hard to talk about the Turkish influence in the Western Balkans. It is hard because they are in NATO. But I, wouldn't, I, I would say that not all influence Turkish government uses in Europe, including Balkans, is friendly if I put it diplomatically. And I think this should be a, a big, big topic for many people to start discussing. Uh, but it's hard for governments to do so because Turkey is inside of, of NATO still. And I, I honestly believe, hope they will keep stay there because we don't want hostile Turkey outside of NATO. But it's very hard because it's basically an Islamist dictatorship. So th that will be hard. Slowly they are, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that there's a big strategic ally, alliance between Turkey and Russia right now. Maybe there's a tactical one, but we'll see in three to five years whether it will survive, because there are colliding interests in the region, as you know.
Jennifer Chen, <coughs> sorry, Jennifer Chen from the Epoch Times. Uh, we, in this afternoon's discussion, we've been putting China and uh, Russia together. Um, but uh, I'm interested in knowing in terms of the tactics, the scales, and the damage of the misinformation. Uh, are there any differences uh, with the two regimes? Thank you. So uh, overall, I think it can help to understand uh, that um, China has a more ideological, um, so th th their misinformation focuses on pushing um, a change in, ideolog in ideology. Um, so uh, for instance, maybe they want to push that, oh, China, China, China is great, let, let, let's say. Um, and whereas Russia, uh, their goals are more uh, to um, create confusion. So this means that they're going to have uh, different techniques in how they're going to be pushing uh, misinformation. So, uh, for instance, for Russia, if uh, maybe they want to create they want to create confusion, uh, they're going to focus on creating divide. So, uh, for instance, we identified uh, certain political bots um, that. For instance, we're operating um, in the U.S. They were also operating within Latin America, and uh, what what they were what they were trying to do was create divide uh, between uh, di b between different groups, um, and so. They might be attacking certain certain political candidates. Um, they might be mocking them. Uh, they, they and and so that 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 was, that was something. For instance, that that was one type of technique. And so that that type of technique is creating divide. Okay. Um, for instance, whereas China, they're they're usually pushing more uh, a, a change in an ideology. So for instance, there you might have bots that are maybe sharing content that is supportive of the ideology that they're that they're trying to that they're trying to push forward. Um, you might also have, for instance, uh, if there's a certain um, let's say there's a hashtag that might be uh, let's say attacking uh, atta attacking something related to China. Um, they might have suddenly, um, they might try to divert the attention by pushing another hashtag to remove it from the trending topics. So uh, I think it can help to think about that China tries to uh, create a change in ideology, and so their political bots are going to be focused on uh, maybe pushing positive content, silencing content that, uh, that, that is not uh, showcasing uh, the, the type of ideology that, that they, that they want to share. Uh, whereas Russia, it's more about creating a divide in people. And so it might be more attacks um, and also even engaging, um, en engaging different groups um, in discussions between each other and really driving more uh, the division between them. Um, now, I'm no expert on Russia at all. But from what I can tell, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong, because you guys are experts, um, the Chinese approach is more gradual, um, more strategic, more patient. Um, and the ideal situation is if you come to find out that you completely agree with Beijing and you don't even know why. So the, the ideal would be to change the water that the fish swims in to the point that the fish changes, right? Not to go in and break off a fin, right? That's a bit too aggressive. And, you know, so they would, I would say, prefer to change the environment and allow that to 
help the species, if you will, evolve into a, a more friendly one. Um, so from my optic, um, if we accept and we take out all ethics and morals out of the equation, I think the Chinese Communist Party strategy is much smarter um, over the long term and causes a lot less um, direct confrontation, as Jakob was saying, in, in, in Central Asia and certainly in the United States. The Russian influence campaigns are a top news item every single day. And in fact, they're kind of pulling the Chinese influence campaigns onto the cover of the newspaper. And the Chinese are, uh, you know, we work so hard not to, to do that, right? So I think that there's, there's a kind of fundamental difference in that way. But that's, again, my, my, my observation. Yeah. Let me just put something from the technical point of view, um, because we hadn't had this uh, today. It's very hard to assess who is behind somebody, because from a technical point of view, we are data and tech company. Um, you can fake like nearly everything. You can fake the IP address, nothing more easier than faking an IP address or um, faking um, an influence operation or trying to fake it. So it's really hard to really attribute something or attribute an activity and n nothing, or let's say it like this, not everything that is out there that looks like Russia is Russia or China, everything. So keep that in mind. This is important from a technical point of view. And just on the objectives, I mean, you could say that, uh, I mean, every country has its mafia, but in Russia, mafia has one country, unfortunately. And I'm afraid this is not to offend anybody, but this is actually how you could, if you understand Russia as, as a captured state by a criminal gang, this is how it, how it, how you can understand it, because they have mainly short-term and mid-term goals, not a long-term strategy like China does. So for that reason, it's really about the negative leverage, about the blackmail, and about the disruption, then about creating the long-term world, which actually Central Eastern Europe is neutralized as a potential U.S. ally in the U.S.-China confrontation in the future. So, and the bottom line, I think, and I, I, I make it very simple, but I think this is this is accurate. The, the end goal for Russia in Central Eastern Europe is to have Belarus all over the place. Basically, horrible small dictatorship you can buy off and you can control, and and they, which are not threatening you domestically in Russia. For China, the end goal, at least in Central Eastern Europe, is Hong Kong. So basically, places which look like nice, but they are not politically independent. They are effectively puppet states. This is, and that's the difference, I think, at the end. So I mean, that's the, that's the outcome or desired outcome, and we see how they are trying to get there. And the only thing is whether we will resist or not. So I really like that comparison, Belarus and Hong Kong. Um, okay, um, back here along the aisle. Hello, uh, Miles Smith. I work at Internews. It's an international NGO that works with journalists. Uh, and I was just curious because we work with folks from a lot of the peripheral countries in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, um, where the governments have a lot of the same incentives. They want to stay in power. They want to enrich themselves. And then the population doesn't really care about China, doesn't really care about Russia. They just want to survive and have a better life than their kids did. So I would wonder first what you would advise a group like us to do with journalists in those countries, uh, first of all. And second of all, if you could speak a little bit to the vulnerabilities that these folks have. I mean, we've talked a lot about uh, who's doing this and why they're doing it, but we're not talking about why it's working and how we can treat 
uh, the causes rather than the effects. Thanks. I'll, I'll give it a whirl. But first, it would be it wouldn't be fun if we agreed on everything all the time. So let me push back gently, if I might, on what Jacob just said. I, I think Hong Kong is a part of China, and that Eastern Europe is never going to be a part of China. So I think that that is, in my personal opinion, that's not what China wants out of Eastern Europe, um, because Hong Kong is just a different animal. That's what uh, it wants out of Taiwan. It wants Taiwan to be Hong Kong. That, that I think, is right, and the South China Sea and Tibet, all the, I agree with that. Um, but what it wants it to be, I don't know. I just don't think it's Hong Kong. But anyway, we can we can talk about that later. Um, you know, in terms of journalists, I mean, you would know as well as anybody that it's a very tough time to be a journalist in China right now. Um, and so this is going to be the worst advice ever. But just you know, keep hope alive. You know, I mean, you've got to keep doing your job, and you've got to keep supporting your people. And I mean. Just, I mean, I would say that when you're able to be bullied, you will be bullied. And so you are um, individuals uh, against a, a state, um, a very powerful, capable state. And so it's a highly asymmetric relationship. Um, so the best thing you can do is use your bully pulpit, use your pen, don't be cowed, and do your job. Um, and if you do that, I think that the truth speaks for itself. But I think that these are kind of platitudes. I'm aware of that. Um, it's just that it's so impossible to give you a really good advice about how to be a journalist in China. I mean, and do and do it in the same way you would do it in a, in a place that protects uh, First Amendment rights. So I'm sorry, this is not the best answer, but it's my best attempt. I have a small one, not on China, on Russia, or on the generally Eastern Europe. I think it is clear by empirical evidence that what brings down similar, let's say, corrupt regimes to some extent, and not only Russia, is uh, small, dozens of small examples or stories on local corruption scandals. One thing is to show how the elite is, is bought off, and I mean, we could talk about Yanukovych in Ukraine and all those things which actually were exposed later on, but the, lo the local corruption scandals, and there are some examples even inside Russia which actually show to, be, to have some at least local impact, that this is something what, what the local population in small city, small town, actually doesn't really like. Uh, they often don't care about geopolitics in general, but they care when their mayor actually really steals. I, I, I have no idea whether it will, at the end, win the whole ball game, but uh, this is the, the, the very important thing which actually works. And I mean, just look inside Hungary. EU-NATO member, which actually has very closed media market. It's actually, you have to be really brave to be an independent journalist inside Hungary these days, not to be harassed with your own family as others have been. Uh, and so I think what actually does work down there again is to keep exposing the corrupt networks. I mean, it's, it's, it's again, no rocket science behind this, but this is where all the, or not, this is the, the majority of international funding should be put in, I believe, to support of local journalist projects, which some of them are like independent Russian language media, but in local languages outside of only Russian language for the Russian population. Um, and for example, that's why the USAID actually launched a small program, I believe, this spring in Hungary. It got backlash from the Hungarian government, like, what are you doing? We are in the EU NATO, why are you supporting it here? But it actually it does make sense to do it. Was it? Okay, okay. So I didn't know that. I, I know it was launched and there was a backlash behind it. Okay, okay, sorry. But at the end, I think this is what should be done. Maybe not true. Yeah, yeah.
Ja. We're right at 4.30, um, so we do need to wrap up. Uh, we can take one more quick question. Uh, <laughs> I saw this guy right here. <laughs> uh, hello, my name is Tomasz Grzewaczewski. I am a world journalist uh, from Poland, and together with my friend Grzegorz, we are students at Daniel Morgan uh, School. And I would like to ask about the role of so-called astroturfing uh, operations uh, in terms of, of Russian uh, information operations uh, and especially the, mm, the uh, usage of bots to, to create astroturfing operations. I'm asking about this because there are evidence and I was working uh, on it with my friend last year that uh, in fact in Poland there was quite a, a serious astroturfing operation uh, during the mm, protests against changes in judicial system. So I'd like to ask you about your opinion about the role of, of astroturfing. Thank you very much. First of all, what do you mean by, or what do you think, or what is your interpretation of astroturfing campaigns? It was understood in Poland because astroturfing are like this social uh, actions, like protests, which seem to be spontaneous but in fact they are not spontaneous and they are created by some hidden actors. And in this particular case in Poland, there were evidence that, evidence that uh, some kind of social actions like in, real, in the real world were created because of the boss activities. There were hashtags, stop astroturfing. In fact, it was manipulation, manipulation, so it's quite complicated. I don't want to take your time to explain it, but it, it, it was quite visible that some spontaneous actions were actually not spontaneous. It was called like astroturfing. Fake grassroots. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so it's important when we discuss it to have the same definition on that. Um, um, I'm, I'm asking because Poland is something very special in Europe. Um, and that means, like, <laughs> like <laughs> has ever been in, in the best way, I mean that. So um, you guys face a lot of things right now and in the last year. So um, the phenomenon of astroturfing is nothing new. Um, it becomes more evidential and more important um, um, since the rise of social media networks and um, the, the, the um, connection uh, between people with their smartphones because I mean you can start a war today with your smartphone and uh, so it's very important. Um, you can see that not only in Poland but also in the US um, especially when you look at the universities. There are many movements who try to um, combine the, um, the, the real world with the digital world or show in the digital world that there might be a movement that is not or organized movements. You, you also saw that in the Arab Spring, for example. There has a lot of movement over there. So. Yes, there is. Yes, you face a lot at the moment in Poland, and um, probably is going to rise um, all over um, Europe. Uh, next year we have European elections. It's pretty important, and um, 
let's see how it develops in, in the US, but it's definitely um, something important to, to look at. Um, so I think that there, uh, tra having transparency can help a lot. So I think that bots can be very helpful for protests um, because, for instance, uh, we saw, um, in, in the case of Mexico, we saw that a lot of technologists were actually deploying bots to help people with disabilities suddenly be able to participate um, in, a pro in a protest offline that they wouldn't be able to attend. Um, and so there were certain tasks that uh, were, were, te were tedious to do. For, for instance, uh, one was uh, re retweeting uh, all of the information, all of the safety information ab about a protest. Uh, another thing was, uh, for instance, maybe even sharing, uh, helping uh, protest pictures get deployed in different social networks. This was something that people with disabilities uh, were actively doing to to help out the people that were on the ground because they couldn't be part of part of them. Um, and so, technologists suddenly created bots to help them, um, so that they didn't uh, they didn't have to do uh, just the, those those tedious activities, but they could focus, for instance, on creating engaging messages, um, maybe identifying who might be uh, a, a better target for, 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 for finding the message. Um, so I think bots can be very helpful for, uh, for, 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 for protests um, and getting more visibility for a protest. I think what we want is uh, we want transparency. So maybe it's, um, for instance, in this case, um, these activists actually had these accounts that would, would say, this is a bot. Um, and so I think that is what you want, because if not, uh, it does become a case where you are using technology to mani manipulate people, um, because you're making them maybe think that uh, more people than actually do are, are supporting a particular cause. Um, and so I would say that what maybe can help is if, uh, I, th I think that uh, we need to develop norms about when we want to use bots, when we don't want to use bots, and, the, and having transparency in when we're using bots. Um, because I do think that bots can be very helpful uh, for protests. Uh, for, for instance, in, in these cases, they were very helpful for uh, getting the protest to have more visibility um, and also even facilitating the participation of people, uh, for instance, with disabilities who weren't able to attend offline. Let me say something. Let me say something to that because um, I have the opposite opinion about the, this. Um, the, the, the nature of a bot or influence operation or why people are using bots is to manipulate. When you have like normal content to spread, you do not need bots. When you have good content to spread, you do not need bots. As, as soon as you use bots, you want to manipulate. So this is pretty easy. There, are different traditions of using bots, for example, more in the Middle East or going a little bit more in the East. There, have the, there are many NGOs using bots, like uh, for human rights or something. So the tradition over there is a little bit different from the tradition in Europe. So it's very important to know that um, I don't think because of the nature of bots, they are changing very fast, the networks are changing. So transparency is always nice. You can always say, hey, I want transparency, but effectively, from a technical point of view, it doesn't work. I only have a, bo a boring short example how to finish up in a tradition.
traditional way of, of protests. Sure. What happened last year was that the Russian intelligence tried to organize a fake protest in front of the Polish embassy in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, they basically hired uh, Ukrainian extremist groups and tried to assemble them in front of the Polish embassy in Kiev to show that there is, you know, there are some historical disagreements, grievances between Poland and Ukraine. What happened was that the, the Ukrainian country intelligence was tipped off, so they basically were, were able to picture all those um, Ukrainian extremists with, with uh, Russian intelligence officers. Everything ended up well, never happened. I mean, it's a boring offline example, but there are dozens of those which actually do appear in Europe, and they are exposed also because of good investigative journalism. And this is what we actually need. I think that's a recommendation probably everybody can get behind. Uh, so with that, I'm afraid we need to round up. There's a lot more that I think we could say, um, but unfortunately we'll have to say it some other time. So please join me again in thanking our panelists and thanking the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung for making uh, today's panel possible. Thank you.